0: So I'm starting a new message series today, and I wanted to show you some of the people who have inspired me. Kanye West. (laughs) So some of you might know, Video Music Awards, Taylor Swift gets the award, I think, for Video of the Year. And Kanye West being very, very upset with this, because Beyonce, he thinks, should have gotten it, in a drunken rant, almost a drunken rage, yanks the microphone out of her hand and says, "Uh uh-uh, Beyonce should have gotten it. Joe Wilson, you lie. The president's joint address to Congress. He felt, whether it was preplanned, whether it was spontaneous, whatever it was, an angry outburst. Next, Serena Williams. For those of you who are tennis fans, U.S. Open. A call went against her, and it was an unfair call. But, brandishing the ball, she turned to the judge... And said, I am going to stuff this blanking ball down your blanking throat. Ended up losing the match because of that. She was suspended a point. And finally, Glenn Beck, Keith Oberman. Now, Glenn Beck, what do you say about Glenn Beck? <laughs> it is very hard to know whether he's serious about what he says or whether he's doing to get a rise out of people, but he traffics in a kind of paranoia and half-truth and a desire to really whip people up into a frenzy that really sets my hair on edge. And yet at the same time, there's Keith Olbermann there, who I agree with relative to Glenn Beck pretty much all of the time. However, this past week, Oberman was making a point uh, about another commentator with whom he vehemently disagreed. And you know, every once in a while, Olbermann likes to get on these rants, he does this thing every night, the worst persons in the world, he does a lot of mocking, a lot of, again, anger that I'm not sure whether it's completely genuine or not. But this past week, he called one of his opponents, those people who, like him, opine on the stuff of the day, he called her a meat bag with lipstick. So these are the folks who have inspired this message series I'm about to start today. Now, are we as Americans angrier than we have ever been? I don't know. And frankly, I don't think so. But in a situation like where we are right now, with a crummy economy that doesn't look like it's going to be getting better necessarily anytime soon, or at least in a way that will make a huge difference in a lot of people's lives who are struggling and suffering with real hardship, real stress, real pain. It seems as if there is a tremendous amount of anger out there, sometimes entirely diffused, unfocused. We know that our society has undergone a tremendous change in some ways, and so much of that is positive And yet, in the wake of so many changes, there are very often counter-reactions. And those counter-reactions are deeply irrational sometimes and very, very angry. My biggest concern, and especially what motivated me to start this message series, is that we as a culture are perhaps starting to mistake anger for passion or purpose. That perhaps there are so many people who are trying to get their voices heard that the only way we think we can be heard is if we shout really, really, really loud. And we command other people's attention through our anger. Maybe in that way, we are not angrier than we have ever been, but anger is more acceptable. And it seems like everyone has a reason to be angry about something. The sign of the times that I took of this, and it's one of my guilty pleasures. I'm going to out myself a little bit here. One of my guilty pleasures are zombie movies. Now, if you know the history of zombie movies in the 60s and the 70s, it in some ways was a commentary on that time. The zombies of the 60s and 70s were really slow and bedraggled and just looked like they were all completely stoned. That was their commentary, perhaps, on that time. Well, if you took a look at zombie movies in the last decade... Zombies are lightning fast and incredibly aggressive. And in one of the best zombie movies that there is, and even if you don't like zombie movies, it's a good movie. 28 days later, the zombies are infected with what they call the rage. Perhaps a symbol, a sign of our times. So the question I want to put before us in this message series I'm starting today is, what's our response to a culture in which anger seems so, not just permissible, but in some ways even desirable? The African-American poet, Audrey Lorde, said in very, very pointed, very, very pointed way that the master's tools cannot disassemble the master's house. If the problem with our culture, and I think it is a big problem in our culture, is that too many people are afraid and too many people are too willing to turn their pain into someone else's problem and make it someone else's problem and express anger towards other people who they don't know or think are out to get them, then how will more anger take apart a system that is built on fear, pain, stress, and rage? We gather week after week, striving to live lives charged full with the charge of the soul. Who are we called to be in an angry culture? But I wanted to give you a positive example of what inspired me as well today. It's by a reading that some of you might know. It's by the Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu, who wrote these words over 2,000 years ago. He said, if there is to be peace in the world, there must be peace in the nations. If there is to be peace in the nations, there must be peace in the cities. If there is to be peace in the cities, there must be peace between neighbors. If there is to be peace between neighbors, there must be peace in the home. If there is to be peace in the home, there must be peace. Namaste. In the heart. So today I want to focus on anger within ourselves, how we deal with anger, how we have deeper resources to move, not beyond anger, but perhaps in some ways into it, to understand what's really there. Now, I do not believe that anger is always awful or anger is always unjustified. Johnny Lydon, who some of you might know better as Johnny Rotten, when he sang for the Sex Pistols. He once sung, and I really believe this in the mid-1980s when I first heard these words, that anger is an energy. Let's all admit it here today, folks. Anger can feel really, really, really good. <laughs> Work yourself into a full-on froth, especially when life might be seeming like it's working out of control or spiraling beyond your control, your ability to shape it. A little dose of anger can make us feel empowered. And in fact, it is unhealthy for folks who can't recognize that anger is just part of being human. We used to talk about type A people. Well, in fact, some of the research done recently is that there are type D people. And the D stands for despair. These are people who internalize all negative emotions and internalize anger against themselves. All the afflictive emotions, shame, guilt, a feeling of just not measuring up, not being worthy. These are people who cannot perhaps in some ways express anger outwardly, and so it's all turned in against the self. Well, these people are associated with very much increased risks to their hearts, to their coronary system. They consistently suffer health risks associated with not being able to recognize that anger is part of life. However, to the other extreme, Even if it's not healthy to deny anger, unfortunately, folks, it's also really not healthy to express it either. Some of you might know the work of Martin Seligman, one of the founders of what's called the School of Positive Psychology, teaches at UPenn. He says that we live in a culture that is a ventilationist society. He says we have a mistaken assumption about anger, which is that anger can only be dissipated by completely expressing it and getting it out. It's as if, when I think about what Seligman says, is that our anger is like a really shaken up carbonated beverage. You know, you shake it up, you shake it up, you shake it up, and the only way to let it out is just to let it explode and get it out. If any of you were John Lennon fans like I am, you remember he did this primal scream therapy in the early 1970s. That's a ventilation of society kind of idea. The idea if we just let it out, our anger will dissipate. But this is not so. People who regularly express anger have higher rates of cardiac problems, higher blood pressure. And when I read this a few years back for the first time, I said, this makes complete sense to me. I had a relative growing up who I saw once or twice a year, always at family gatherings. And, you know, family gatherings, for many of us, are stressful events. No one knows how to push our buttons like family knows how to push our buttons. And sometimes we really want our buttons pushed because that's the role that we play in the family system. And whenever I was hanging out with this one relative, they will go unnamed to protect the innocent. They know who they are, though, if they're listening to this. (laughs) She would always say, I'm venting. I'm venting. Someone annoyed her. I'm venting, I'm venting, I'm venting. But the problem was she never vented out. Each time I saw her, she was always venting. Isn't the point of, you know, like, ventilating our houses to actually get the stuff out and bring fresh air in? She just kept venting. And so actually, when Seligman's talking about the idea that living in a ventilacious society and somehow thinking that we've just expressed our anger, we'll get rid of it, actually really ma- helps me make sense of a Buddha saying, also going back almost 2,000 years, that we will not be punished for our anger but we will be punished by our anger. Venting anger over and over again just means that we pollute not just the air, but the emotional and the spiritual atmosphere in which we live and in which others live as well. So what's the choice then? If holding it all in and denying it is not healthy and letting it out and spewing it out is not healthy either, Between spewing it out or bottling it up, what's the choice? The choice begins in listening. In listening to our anger, listening to our stress and our pain, pausing long enough to perhaps recognize and understand what the source of that anger is. I know of no better teacher about the deep spiritual power of listening than the Quaker, Parker, Palmer... He describes the soul in this way, and it is about listening. He said, the soul is like a wild animal, tough, resilient, savvy, self-sufficient, and yet and yet, exceedingly shy. If we want to see a wild animal, the last thing we should do is go crashing into the woods, shouting for the creature to come out and find us. But if we are willing to walk quietly into the woods and sit silently for an hour or two at the base of a tree, the creature that we are waiting for might well emerge. And out of the corner of an eye, we might catch a glimpse of the precious wildness that we are seeking out. Anger too often chases the soul away, and it chases other souls away as well. Anger casts, or at least it can cast, a very long shadow, and at that point we have a choice. We can project that shadow outward, casting darkness out into our lives, or we can ask the question, what lies in our own shadows, what stress, what pain, what thing that is at issue. We have the opportunity to investigate what lies inside of our own shadows. The poet Rilke said that perhaps, just perhaps everything terrifying is in its deepest being something helpless that wants help from us. Maybe it just wants help from us. When we're angry, we can start our spiritual practice of working with our anger by asking, what are you, what are we trying to protect? What is so threatening that it needs our anger to defend ourselves against it? And also the question beyond that, is it worth protecting in the first place? We might find out that what we are angry about is something that died a long time ago and yet we're still holding onto it. The Buddha saying says that anger when we think it's used to punish another person is like holding a white hot rock in our hands that we are waiting to throw all the time having our own skin being singed. C.S. Lewis in his really fanciful wonderful little book called The Great Divorce which is about his bus tour through heaven and hell that he takes very very English. He hops on the bus one gray awful misty well actually kind of like today London morning and he gets a tour of heaven and hell. And the cool thing about this story is even though Lewis is an Orthodox or was an Orthodox Christian, his idea of the afterlife, which he admits is very, very fanciful, is that people on a deep level choose to be the states that they are after this life ends. And so the people that Lewis finds in hell are in a a way self-damned. There's one particular character who walks around completely miserable, not in the flames. It's not any of that Halloween kind of scare you into, you know, scare you out of your mind to scare you into Jesus kind of stuff. It's not that kind of thing. But there's this one character in The Great Divorce who walks around with a lizard on his shoulder, who, are tum- who absolutely torments this poor creature. And the lizard represents his lust, his desire in a really carnal way to get exactly what he wants. And it's really tinged with anger and stress, and pain. Now the thing about this lizard is that, well, the God doesn't have a body anymore, so lust is not going to do him any good. But he can't let it go. He won't let the lizard drop, recognizing that it's not any good to him any longer. And so thinking back to my relative, who was always venting, finally she was just venting about venting. <laughs> There was nothing she was particularly angry about, except she was looking for an occasion to express her anger. But that was the problem. Through all that venting, she just formed her own character and rather deformed her character. I think right now, if I knew then what I know now, I would ask simply, can you put your anger down for a second? Can you just put it down and see that perhaps the fight that you are fighting is a fight that was long ago over and done with? Sometimes, though, when we are angry, we will find that the thing that we are angry about really is worth our time, really is worth our attention. And in those circumstances, it is even more important that we listen to it. It could be an ideal, a person, part of ourselves that we are afraid of losing. It could be a part of ourselves that we are afraid that it is in jeopardy. It could be something or someone that, like Rilke said, scares us but desperately needs our help even if it is ourselves that needs our own help the most. Anger is sometimes a very, very thick skin over our own God-shaped holes. If we investigate, we might find that under that scab, there might be the opportunity for a deeper healing. And so listening to our anger is really an act of faith of trusting that although our anger threatens to consume us, threatens to consume other people because anger can feel so powerful, because anger is an energy, that maybe, just maybe, there is something deeper, bigger, wider, broader, more powerful and more meaningful than our anger. Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen is not just a medical doctor, but she's also, in the deepest sense, a healer. She tells a story at one point about a patient who she worked with, a guy named David. David was 17 years old, living seemingly as david thought a completely normal life and he got a diagnosis of juvenile diabetes this absolutely compromised david's understanding of where he wanted his life to go and how he wanted his life to be and so he reacted dr remen says with all the ferocity of a caged animal not taking his Glucose count not taking his insulin when he needed to be and so his parents were desperately worried that it wasn't just a teenage rebellion kind of thing He was actually compromising perhaps his own life. And so they sent david to work with dr. Remen Six months of therapy progressed and no progress whatsoever He was just as angry just as much in pain Just as much unwilling to move beyond his anger until one day he came in and shared this story with dr. Remen He had a dream so real one night so real that he was sure, even when he woke up, that he was awake all along. He was in a room, a room, and in the corner he saw a statue of the Buddha. Now, David was not Buddhist himself. He never had any sort of Buddhist practice or anything. But this Buddha was sitting, as the Buddha does, with a serene smile upon his face. And David responded to that serenity with a feeling of peace himself. But then from over David's shoulder, from outside the room, a dagger, a knife was thrown, and it lodged right here in the center of the Buddha's belly. And with that, David became absolutely furious in his dream. Why is it that life is like this? Why is it that everything that is whole is made broken? Why is there so much pain, so much stress, so much anger, so much that we can't control? And in his dream, he was so furious. But then something interesting happened in his dream. The Buddha's visage did not change. He kept that contented, serene smile on his face. But something else happened. The Buddha this size grew to this size grew to that size, grew to that size, and then grew larger than the room itself. All the while not changing the look of serenity and peace on his face. All the while that dagger was still there in his side. But his serenity was deeper than the pain and deeper David found that his own anger. David awoke with tears and with joy because he had started to find, because this was his dream, that there was something bigger in him than his anger. There was something bigger in him than the threats of his diabetes. And through this, he could start to heal his own broken and stressful life. How we, like David, work with our anger is a cornerstone, perhaps the cornerstone, of our spiritual maturity. The fury of religious fundamentalism that is so much a part of our world right now is that it is a religious immaturity made real and made violent. It goes by many names, but really when it comes down to it is a theology of resentment. This idea that we would project onto God or into the heavens or into fate, the anger that we will not allow ourselves to feel, but we'll say, let's let God take care of it for us. You can hear this disturbing voice in Paul's letter to the Romans. It starts out okay. Paul saying, don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing this, you will heap hot burning coals on his head. This is toxic religion. This is an immature projection, outward to fate, to God, when really mature spirituality is about integration, about wholeness within here, within our own hearts. The Russian author Solzhenitsyn, who had his own problems, hugely so with projection and making an other, making scapegoats, he was absolutely right when he said, there is that line between good and evil in this world and it runs right down through the center of each and every human heart. Outsourcing our anger to God, to karma, to fate, to some other transpersonal force, it is also a refusal to claim that which is of God in us, as David found out his own Buddha nature. And so to be very, very clear about using our spiritual energy, even in the midst of anger, for all the good that we can. By contrast, Jesus said it very simply. He said very simply, blessed are the peacemakers. Not those who believe in peace, and not those who think that peace is a really good idea that someday might be possible, but peacemakers. People who understand that it is only ever in the context of stress and pain and anger that peace can be made. Peacemaking is a practice, perhaps the deepest practice, and that is why I charge all of us with it at the end of our worship service every week. Peacemaking is that practice, just like listening to our anger that leads us away from being scattered or divisive or angry with life and back towards wholeness in the end. First picture I showed you today was Kanye West. Well, he went on a media tour, which is what celebrities do when they screw up in public. And so he went, as some of you know, the Leno show. And he offered his mea culpa. He offered his apology. And what he said was this. He talked about his stress. He talked about his grief from his mom's death. And he said, I'm sorry that my pain caused someone else's pain. Now, I have no idea whether these words were put in Kanye West's mouth by his publicity agent. But whether he meant it or not, Kanye West was absolutely right. Peacemaking begins in our own hearts when our own hearts are broken, when our own hearts are stressed when our own hearts are angry. Peacemaking begins here because it is only when peacemaking begins here that we can share it with the world. We cannot share something we don't already possess. When, if, we can bring our peaceful presence into this world so beset by anger, so beset by fear, so beset by pain, when we can bring this kind of presence into that kind of presence, then no matter how small your offering, no matter how diminished you might think your peaceful presence is, it is necessary. And it and you and us will be a blessing. The blessing that the world needs. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. A spirit of life deeper, more compassionate, more wise than our anger. We would ask for the capacity to look deeper. The capacity to see anger as an alarm that might set us off to the presence of something beautiful. To the presence of something injured. To the presence of our own lives. Neither through the path of denial. Nor through the path of explosion. But through the path of simply listening. And simply being present. May we turn that anger inside out. Find a path back towards wholeness. And walk. Every day. This day, walk in steps of peace. Amen.